Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. Babies' gut microbes, when they're exposed to these fluomilk oligosaccharides, it actually helps to shape their immune system, but it also can help shape their metabolic health as well. And what's really amazing about um, human milk oligosaccharides as opposed to animals is that there's such a huge diversity of human milk oligosaccharides. We have a diversity in humans that is unparalleled. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Allergy is on the rise. It affects one in five adults and the rise in children is astonishing. One in three will suffer asthma, one in six will suffer eczema, and there has been a huge rise in food allergy now affecting one in 13 children, including a five times increase in peanut allergy. All this brings a huge amount of disruption to people's lives. Fear and the rising wait times for allergy clinics is a well-known phenomenon. And working as a GP and in A&E, I have seen thousands of children with issues. And that's why I really wanted to talk about what things we can do to prevent food allergy using the research available today. So Dr. Vincent Ho is my guest today, who is a clinical academic gastroenterologist and senior lecturer at the School of Medicine, University of Western Sydney. He's also a practicing gastroenterologist. And more recently, he published the Healthy Baby Gut Guide. And when it came across my desk, I thought that this book was packed with sensible advice. Vincent has laid out the studies in a really easy to understand way. And there's a dietitian approved nine-week infant meal plan to help you navigate the introduction of foods for your baby, which I think is essential reading for every parent and parent-to-be. Uh, because I think having that structure is really, really useful. There's a lot to cover today, but by the end of this episode, you should be able to understand the concepts of immune tolerance and the hypotheses behind why we see a rise in, in allergy in general, why early exposure to common allergenic foods is key, 
and also the genetic and environmental links between allergy, including the uncomfortable topic of BPA and phthalates as well, as well as other environmental pollutants, what the first thousand days refer to and why this is actually critical for supporting a normal immune system. We talk about how maternal diet impacts food allergy, the evidence for supplements such as fish oils, probiotics, and vitamin D for mothers. We also talk about the benefits of breast milk, probiotics for children, and a diverse diet for kids as well. How to introduce known allergens into your baby's diet from six months in a systematic and safe manner using an anti-allergy meal plan. I think this is perhaps one of the best uh, practical take-homes from the book as well. And we also talk about the future for allergy therapy. It's a fantastic episode. And if you're looking to get pregnant or have a high risk for allergy, I think this is highly recommended listening. And if you do know anyone, then I would highly recommend you share it as well and just spread the love and the message as well. This is going to be hopefully a wonderful resource for you guys. I'm doing a new thing every single week, which is our podcast recipe of the week. A recipe that reflects the topic of conversation on the podcast. And this week it is the crispy black bean bowl. You can get it on the app right now. And you'll also get it in this week's newsletter as well. If you're a subscriber, you can just look it up at thedoctorskitchen.com. The reason why I'm adding this recipe is because a friend of ours is actually going through the weaning process and they're cooking for themselves, but they're also splitting up the ingredients that go into their meal into a simple mashed version for their child as well. And it's a lovely uh, sight to see. I mean, obviously the recipes aren't made for weaning, but looking at the individual elements of this, bit of avocado, bit of black beans, bit of um, uh, greens there as well. Uh, just loads of different elements that they can uh, uh, choose on a smorgasbord in front of them. So there's actually a picture I'm hopefully going to show that on um, uh, social media as well. So you'll see what I mean. But yeah, I thought I would share the crispy black bean bowl as the podcast recipe of the week. And don't forget, you can download the Doctor's Kitchen app for free to get access to all of our recipes with a seven-day free trial. We add recipes every single month and we've had some amazing feedback so far and new features being added all the time you're going to hear about those on the podcast too and do uh, check out the newsletter where i share something for you to eat read listen to or watch every way there's some mindfully curated media to help you have a healthier happier week and you can go check that out there awesome uh, the links to everything are going to be on the show notes at thedoctorskitchen.com but for now here is my podcast with the wonderful dr vincent Poe. Great, Vincent. Uh, so, so good to have you here. I'm so glad we got to do this. Unfortunately, we couldn't do it when I was in Sydney, obviously with COVID and everything going on. But uh, I'm really glad that you've uh, you've got some time to jump on the pod today. Hey, thanks, Rupi. That's fantastic. Yeah, thank you for having me on. And I'm really passionate about talking today. Uh, this is a topic really dear to my heart. Yeah, absolutely. I, I actually, I, I read at the end of the book, actually, whilst you're closing, um, that this book was really the product of something that happened five years ago in your storyline with your, your lovely daughter uh, in a Chinese restaurant. Uh, I, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about uh, that day and, and, and how that's led to, to what you do now and ultimately this book as well. Yeah, Rupi, it was a day that uh, is very memorable to me. 
um, because the day that I felt I almost lost my my daughter. Um, so Olivia is now six, and this was about five years ago when she was six months of age. And we were in a yum cha restaurant, and one of the things you eat at yum cha um, towards the end of it is an egg tart. So it's a delicacy that we have. Uh, I'm sure you've tried it, Rupi, the, the, the beloved egg tart. Um, and we fed her um, a bit of that egg tart. Now, we hadn't given her egg before. We thought it was safe. And then within a few minutes, um, she started getting a reaction. So she looked very distressed. Um, she had a skin reaction. Um, she looked like she was very uncomfortable. I felt she wasn't breathing very well. I was really concerned that she was going into anaphylaxis. And, you know, Rupi, we are medical doctors and we have, when we're managing patients, we have all the resources behind us. We've got emergency, we've got all the equipment behind us. But when you don't have that, when you're there with your family, you've got nothing, you actually feel helpless. You've got nothing. There's no, there's nothing. There's, there's just no medical devices. There's no medications. You feel helpless. And I've never been that helpless in my life. Like, I think I remember days when we'd see patients coming into trauma, um, stressful cases of, of anaphylaxis, rather cases, but we would manage that in the confined setting of emergency. Um, it was very planned. It was that, but then and there, I, 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 you know, I will admit that I freaked out. I, I was very, very scared and I, um, up for an EpiPen, but of course, you know, you're here in a restaurant, no one's got one. <laughs> and so we decided to, because um, I was so afraid, I got in, in the car, drove to the hospital. I didn't want to even call for a, the ambulance, got a straight there for emergency. And fortunately, by the time that she got there, um, the reaction seemed to settle. So it was it was good. And then we got her reviewed later on um, by an immunologist, and she was diagnosed as a formal allergy, an egg allergy. Um, and so that led me to really, <laughs> that encounter led me to really investigate um, childhood allergies. And then I realized, Rupi, the connection between childhood allergies and the gut. And you now I can tell you there's an amazing story to tell there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Two things. A, I really respect the fact that your authentic environment enough to say you know you freaked out because i've been in similar scenarios outside of clinical settings and you do you know there's not that nurse that you can call and and you know you don't have hands on deck there's no other doctors to help you with a an uh, emerging situation and also when it's your loved one as well it, it heightens your anxiety it's a it's a very uncomfortable uh feeling and scenario so that I mean, yeah, I, I really respect you, you talking and sharing about that story. And then the other thing is, this will resonate with so many people, because so many people today, as you eloquently talk about in the book as well, have children with allergies or allergies themselves as well. And we're just, we're, we've seen this huge rise over the last 15, 20 years. I wonder if you could speak to the numbers and Maybe we could dive into some of the hypotheses as to why this is happening. And, and obviously, as you've alluded to, it really does come down to uh, uh, a lot of gut health related theories, too. Yeah, so allergies is a growing problem. It's actually becoming um, an epidemic. And I will say that uh, if you look at the figures behind uh, allergies, we know that about 
30 to 40 percent of the world's population right now is affected by allergies. I mean, that's just simply a staggering figure. And what's interesting about allergies is that the incidence of allergies has actually increased by about two to three fold in industrialized countries over the last three decades. And it's estimated that about 4 billion of the 9.7 billion people that will have by the year 2050 will have at least one allergy. So the scale is huge. And I can tell you that in Australia, you know, children and allergies is a big issue. As an example, uh, we know that about one in 10 children in Australia will have a food allergy. And that's been shown mm. in one study that was published out of Melbourne a few years ago. So it's a huge problem. Now, as to what we can do about that, we've got to realize that there are a number of forces at work here. And certainly uh, the environment does play a role. The hygiene hypothesis is a hypothesis groupie that's been banding around a lot. And in fact, mm. this is a hypothesis that actually comes from the United Kingdom. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it, it came about because a professor, David Strawn, um, who um, is a London epidemiologist, and he published in the BMJ this survey, um, this is back in the late 1980s, of about 17,000 British children. Um, and he wanted to find out why there was this increase in the incidence of hay fever um, in post-war Britain. Now, what he found was very interesting. So he found the more older siblings a child had, the less likely he or she was to develop eczema by the age of one or hay fever by the age of 23. And so Professor Strutt recognized there was some protective effect that the older siblings were passing on to the younger children. Now, I mean, Rupi, you know, certainly listeners um, will recognize it, especially if you've got children, they can be quite feral when they play. Yeah. Um, they <laughs> tear one another. And, uh, you know, along the way, lots of microbes are being transmitted. So Professor Strawn felt that maybe the special protective effect was actually exposure to microbes. And it was thought that early exposure to particular microbes would protect against development of allergies by affecting the development of the immune system. And this is what the hygiene hypothesis is all about. Um, mm. So what interesting hypothesis, um, he published it. Uh, and it was interesting when he published it because the term hygiene was only in the title of the paper. It wasn't actually in the paper at all. It was in the title, but me just loved it. You know, it was just yeah. this theory about, you know, less hypothesis about hygiene and, uh, and people felt that, you know, you had to be um, exposed to lots of bacteria and bugs and get dirty. And that was mm. what was needed to protect against allergies. And it's actually not strictly true, Rupee. I mean, you shouldn't basically not disregard personal hygiene. You should actually do all the right things, clean your hands, of course, because that's not what the hygiene hypothesis is about. It's really about the fact that if you get exposure to these microbes and these microbes that he's talking about and Later on, there's been other amendments to the hypothesis. These microbes have been around for a long time, what we call old friends. Uh, so these mm. old friends microbes have been around for a long time. And by getting exposure to these microbes early in life, it can actually help to change our immune system um, in such a way that it can help protect against allergies. Mm. Yeah. I, I wonder, so you, you 
nicely described there the two sort of uh, dominant theories that I think most people have heard of the the hygiene hypothesis and it's very interesting to note that that was just in the title yet the media just like latched onto that as the term <laughs> and then the the old friends theory I wonder if you give us a, a basic immunology lesson in terms of how balancing of those T helper cells actually leads to uh, uh, allergy and, and leads to protection as one well, and how they can uh, how how they uh, communicate with each other yeah so Classically, we're talking here about Th1 and Th2 imbalance. So just to explain, Th1 cytokines are really those, um, best way to put it will be pro-inflammatory. So they're really in favor of inflammation. And these are molecules that are designed to kill off bacteria. They get inside our cells and they can kill off viruses. It's really important. But we know that if you've got too much inflammation, then that is going to cause a lot of tissue damage. You won't just cause damage to your bacteria and viruses. It's going to kill a lot of your cells. So, you, so the body has to have a way to counteract against it. And this is why you've got Th2 cytokines. So Th2 cytokines actually help to counteract the Th1 response. Um, what I will say is that they're particularly good at fighting off parasites, such as worms, that are located outside our cells. Now, mm -hmm. A lot of these Th2 cytokines are anti-inflammatory, but the trade-off though with having a very vigorous Th2 response is that it can actually promote allergy. And this is where the, the Th1, Th2 cytokine, um, that plays, that's a mechanism that's been proposed to, to explain the hygiene hypothesis. So there are some factors that can really favor a Th1 response. So for example, presence of older siblings, we talked about early exposure to daycare, um, if you're household pets, childhood infections, um, exposure to a farming environment, these are things that are going to favor Th1 response, and moving away from Th2. On the other hand, things that favor Th2 response include the widespread use of antibiotics and mm. a more industrialized life, like a more industrialized lifestyle. So Th1, Th2 is an important part of the explanation um, hygiene hypothesis, but I will say that's not the full story behind allergy. There's a bit more involved there. For example, you've yeah. got T regulatory cells that can help dampen mm -hmm. down that allergic immune response. But I think it's a quite a good concept that T1 TH2 imbalance. It's a good concept that we can build upon. Yeah, definitely. No, not to derail our conversation too much uh, because I think we can go down a rabbit hole with this, but considering what's happened over the last couple of years and what we just mentioned about how early exposure and even uh, going to daycare early can uh, help develop immune responses and a, and a more tolerant immune system. Would you expect us to have worse allergies within kids considering we've pulled them out of nursery and, and daycare and that kind of stuff for the last couple of years because of the pandemic? Well, look, I think the answer is uh, it's quite likely. Um, the reason for that, Rupi, and obviously we need more data on this, is it exposure and certainly for young children contact with other young, young children um, some of those microbes um, is is actually important protective it favors the th1 response now if you've got an environment like with covid and the social distancing that goes on um mm. the parents don't want their children to, to, to mingle with other children children they're keeping their children in, in a very sterile <laughs> sanitized environment you can imagine that actually is going to lead to more allergies and in fact rupee I mean, I think we should watch this years to come. Yeah. We'll see what the data shows. There could be an yeah. explosion of allergies 
a result of the, of all this social distancing um, that we're seeing with the with the, with COVID nineteen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it would definitely be one to watch. I'd be I'd be fascinated to see what, how we can counter that as well with uh, with um, uh, other sort of public health measures to to encourage encourage uh, immune tolerance. Um, obviously genes has an impact as well you know the, these uh, uh, allergies have uh, a run in families and then you also mentioned environmental pollutants that i wanted to touch on as well um can, can we speak to those do we do we know a lot about the genetic component now yeah so the genetics is really really quite important and i think mm -hmm. when we talk about genetics we've got to find what actually is high risk because high risk um, for allergy has a very specific definition so i think in, in talking about high risk for allergy, and certainly this is applicable when it comes to all the, all the, all the trials here, we're, we're really talking about the big four allergies here. So the big four allergies are eczema, food allergy, uh, asthma, and hay fever, which is also known as allergic rhinitis or allergic rhinoconjunctivitis. So essentially, if you are a child that has a parent or sibling that has one of those big four allergic diseases, or if you, as a child, if you've already got a history of one or more of these allergies, then you are at high risk. So as an example of that, because Olivia um, had an egg allergy, then her younger brother, Brandon, um, is at high risk of developing allergy. Um, also, um, if you've had an allergy, um, let's say you've got eczema, then of course you'll be at a greater risk of developing other allergies like food allergy. And that's really important, Ruben, because um, researchers can look at a, a population at risk. For example, they can look at children that are, that are likely to develop other allergies because of the rate they already have a pre-existing allergy and they can study them um, and look, look to see whether the interventions that they're testing can reduce the rate of developing those allergies. So I think that's really important in, in terms of defining high risk for allergy. And obviously we know that there's a genetic tendency to develop allergies in many of these children and we call that atopy. So A to P is that genetic tendency to develop an allergy. And believe it or not, it actually has a lot to do with this TH2, TH1 response. And the reason I say that, and I don't want to get too technical about this, but we know that after birth, the TH2 reactivity, it actually dampens down infants that go on to show no evidence of allergy. So those that are non-atopic, the TH2 reactivity goes down. Now, we know that um, in a lot of, in a large proportion of infants, the TH2 reactivity can remain elevated, persist for a few years, but eventually dampens down. However, there is a group of children that are atopic that are going to have a persistent heightened TH2 reactivity for years and years and years. And those are the children that are at great risk for allergies. They're the children that have a very significant, profound allergic reaction, anaphylaxis. So there's, there is a bit linking the immune system to, to genetic risk. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, you, you talked a bit about environmental pollutants here. Now, yeah. this is a tough one to talk about because <laughs> it's just so pervasive in society today to have BPA and non-BPA products that might still have issues, phthalates. And I think if we were talking about this maybe like uh, five, 10 years ago, there would have been a lot of eye rolling. But now I think it's becoming a lot more understood about what these impacts can have, certainly on metabolic health. But I was I was quite surprised to hear about this uh, and its impact on allergy as well. Yes, Rupi. So we know that many of these pollutants that you 
mentioned um, pesticides, solvents, they, um, they actually can modulate the immune system. So they tend to decrease the Th1 response. They can also enhance the Th2 response. And as I mentioned before, you need that Th1, Th2 um, cytokine balance. So for example, cigarette smoke, um, you know, that decreases Th1 activity. And it's linked, not surprisingly, to a higher risk of allergy in children yeah. and unsurprisingly asthma. So we know that. Children that are exposed to diesel exhaust particles, um, it tends to, interestingly enough, support, it supports more Th2 hormonal messaging cells. It tends to stimulate those cells and a support to switch towards Th2 and Th2 immune response. And we know, as you mentioned before, that things like BPA, um, phthalates, of course, um, they play a role. I mean, phthalates themselves can induce Th2 activity. Um, and organic solvents, another big one too. So organic solvents, um, you get that, of course, in a lot of products. You get that in paints, mm. you get that in cleaning mm. products, you get that in um, glues. And we know that with children that are exposed to a lot of these solvents, they have found they've got an increased Th2 response. And they tend to be more likely to respond to milk and egg whites. So that's been shown in studies. Oh, wow. um, and finally, of course, herbicides, pesticides. Well, yeah, there's been a lot of good data about that too. Um, there was one big study from California that actually studied school-age children that were exposed to pesticides or herbicides and actually found that um, there was a uh, noticeably elevated risk in the development of asthma. And in fact, when it comes to herbicides, the risk of developing asthma was increased four and a half times. So, oh wow, fairly significant. Yeah, this is really significant. And I, I guess, like you know, your experience—you've you've had a child, you've had that horrific experience of a, a known allergy. When you hear about these things, and obviously you're doing a deep dive into the research as well, how do you balance health anxiety with? being pragmatic about, you know, what can lower the issues with your child? Because I think a lot of people were listening to this and be like, I need to clean my entire house of all these products. <laughs> I need to make sure I only eat organic. You know, there's got to be a balance with this stuff, right? Yeah, look, I agree. And we've got to be practical about that. So for example, um, many water bottles now are BPA free. And so that's a good mm -hmm. thing. Um, avoiding exposure early in life to some of those organic solvents, for example, paints is sensible. Um, I think that we've got to be reasonable about uh, the advice that we give. So, you know, I think it's common sense to say that cigarette smoke, avoiding that um, is going to be beneficial, not just for allergies, but for a whole range of reasons, health reasons too. Mm. I think when it comes to pesticides and herbicides, um, it, it can be difficult um, to give specific guidance about that because Often we don't know that whether the products that we're consuming have been exposed to pesticides or herbicides. And, um, and I know that there's been an industry now which has developed around organic um, and pesticide-free. I'm yeah. not necessarily saying that we should, we should be um, going for foods, for example, that are, that are totally pesticide-free or herbicide-free. I mean, I realize that, that at a practical level, um, people need their, you know, need their vegetables, they need their fruits. Um, that's important but i think that wherever possible during at least during the first years of life it's good for your very young children to avoid exposure to some of those environmental contaminants that are that are very obvious so yeah. things like cigarette smoke avoid exposure to paints for example um water bottles if they're bpa free that's that's ideal 
Um, so some of those yeah. practical things, Rupi, uh, are good. And don't forget, of course, there are things that we can do to help uh, reduce their risk of, of allergy as well. So even though there are things that are increasing their risk, there are things that we can do to reduce their risk. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that leads on quite nicely to uh, what I wanted to ask you about, which is uh, the thousand days. And perhaps you can introduce us into the 1000 days concept when that starts uh, at the moment of conception and why this is so important when it comes to allergy. And, and I think, again, within the context of uh, not giving people too much uh, health anxiety, you've quite nicely talked about how there is a lot of external pressure as well as internal pressure from mothers in particular about what they should be eating and what they should be feeding their child postpartum as well. So I think that within the context, you know, we want to be sympathetic to people. And I think I think you you toe that line very well in the book too. <laughs> yeah, Rupi. So look, I think to, to understand um, the first 1,000 days of life and why it's so important, I think we can go back to a hypothesis that has been talked around a lot. It's called the you know, dual allergen hypothesis. And really, that's the idea that if you um, uh, if you sensitize, for example, I, I'll guess if we use food allergy, for example, if you sensitize uh, somebody to skin, so a low dose uh, allergen to skin, it tends to, to trigger off um, an allergy. Whereas if you consume that a food that food protein very early on, it induces um, oral tolerance. So oral tolerance is developed very early on. And people wonder, why is that? Why is it that when you get exposed to, to, to skin, uh, that you know, even at a low dose, that's getting an allergy, whereas when you consume it orally um, early on in life, you're getting tolerance. Well, it comes down to this exact point, the first 1,000 days of life, what actually happens in the gut? So the first 1,000 days of life begins at utero, so it begins at conception. Um, so if we look at conception, we say it's nine months. On average, rupee, that's about 270 days. So that's the first 270 days of that 1,000 days. And then after that, you have the next 730 days, which basically puts it just after two years of age. So that's when it goes. The first 1,000 days ends just after the child turns two. What is happening during that period? Well, we know that what's happening is that there's a tremendous amount of development just going on inside the gut, um, both structurally, the gut's developing, but also the microbes within the gut are also developing. So very early on, there's this development phase, the um, bacteria are colonizing the gut, the, the baby's gut. And then after a while, there's this um, a stimulation, this growth phase, which occurs. And finally, there's this is uh, phase and it's towards the end of the two years where we get stability of the gut microbiota. So we know now how important the gut microbes are, but towards the end of the two years, um, that's the time when the gut microbes of that child is, is fairly set. So it's very similar to an adult. There's a mm. lot happening, between, especially in the first year of life, a lot is happening, but by the end of the two years, things stabilize quite a lot. And that means that if we want to address um, we want to make some changes that can affect the immune system. The, the, the idea of making some changes in the first 1,000 days of life, particularly early on in that time, is probably the, the, the key time. So mm. Interventions in the first 1,000 days of life 
have the ability to really shape your gut microbes for the future. Yeah, yeah. This is, I mean, this is fascinating stuff. And I think um, I remember reading uh, externally from your book as, as well as in the book as well about the trimester uh, transfer of maternal antibodies and how maternal diet can also shape uh, the microbiota of, of uh, the child as well that, or in utero. Um, I wonder if we could talk a bit about those studies that have looked at specific elements of the diet and how that has impacted either positively or negatively uh, the likelihood of allergy uh, um, post that 270 days. Yeah. So, um, look, I think it's, uh, there. I guess the good news is there's a lot of studies. There's a lot of studies mm. out there. It's really quite exciting because there have been studies which have been done on pregnant mothers and fact, there's one study that I do want to talk about. It's one that was done in Massachusetts. This was a study that had over 1,200 mother-child pairs. And what they did during the study was they found that um, they were recording the information about the mother's consumption of various foods. And what they found was that the mothers that consumed high levels of peanuts, milk, and wheat during pregnancy, um, early pregnancy in particular, was associated with reduced a reduced chance of childhood allergies, especially asthma. So the important thing was that the exposure to those allergenic foods happened mm. early during pregnancy. And this is a concept that we're going to go back to again and again, Rupi, intervening early. Um, really? So mm -hmm. the research has found the window of time in which women um, ate these risky foods was vitally important. That, in other words, the first trimester, they felt, was a very key time the development of the unborn baby's immune system and the creation of tolerance to that allergen. So tolerance is the concept that the um, immune system, the baby's immune system, recognizes this foreign substance and adapts to it. It doesn't have a, uh, an, an allergic response. It's not an inflammatory response. It recognizes it um, and um, it recognizes it as a um, a, a substance which it regards as quite safe and it's learned to learn to live with it. So that's what tolerance is all about. So the idea then is that if food allergens are exposed to mothers early during pregnancy, then that can potentially lead to tolerance um, rather than sensitizing them to allergies. So that was one really interesting study during pregnancy. Now, there was another big study and it's come out comes out of Europe. It was a great study here. This was the PASA study, which was published in 2012. And mm. this followed over a thousand children that were born to farm and non-farm mothers. So what I mean by that is mothers that spent the time on farms and ones that didn't. And they followed them in five love this study. Yeah. yeah. Great, great study here. Um, and what was interesting about this study, Rupi, was that they found that if you were exposed to a farming environment during pregnancy, that was associated with a reduced risk of asthma in children. So it was a mm. fascinating one here. And we know that farm environment, lots of bugs, microbes. Um, and it was such a, an interesting study that it, in that it prompted people to recognize there was something about the farm environment that was protective. What was that um, factor? Um, well, it turns out that one important factor is endotoxins. So it sounds like they're very bad for you because it's like toxins, but actually endotoxins aren't actually bad for you. They're actually found naturally in farms. Um, you find them a lot in farm stables where you find 
livestock and poultry. And the thing about these endotoxins is that they actually help to switch your immune response to a TH1 pattern. Uh, and there was one other big study that was done called the Parsifal study. And that study was fascinating because that study studied, again, mothers that were, that, uh, were on a farm and they found what they, they looked at what they did to reduce their risk of developing um, allergy, or risk of allergy in their children. And they found that the single most important protective factor for these mothers um, was actually exposure to a, a, a farm stable environment. So in other words, if they were exposed to farm stable work, and it sounds really kind of crazy out here, <laughs> but if they were exposed to that, then their children would have um, a significant reduced risk of allergy. That was a, the single most protective factor in that big possible study. It's fascinating. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely fascinating that. It, it sounds like to me like, um, so over 10 years ago, when I first became a doc, um, there was the pervasive belief that we should be avoiding allergic foods within the maternal diet. Uh, but now it seems like we've, you know, we've completely changed that. And we're actually encouraging not just inclusion of those uh, uh, potential allergens, but early inclusion. So the timing of when we eat these foods sounds to be quite critical. Yes, that's absolutely right, Ruby. That's indeed been a paradigm shift, a significant paradigm shift when it comes to, as you said, uh, in pregnancy. It's no longer about avoiding allergenic foods, but it's rather getting exposure to those foods early on to develop tolerance. And we can talk about this later, but also when it comes to young infants too, about them also getting exposure to these foods, allergenic foods early in life. So everything's switching off to early. If there is one concept, that I want to impart to your listeners. It's about getting exposure to these allergenic foods early. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Um, and sticking on the maternal diet before we move over to uh, uh, baby, um, supplements, fish oil, vitamin D, and probiotics in during pregnancy. Uh, what are your thoughts on those and what does the research show? Yeah, so look, I think that when it comes to um, pregnancy, certainly vitamin D is very important. Mm-hmm. So if you're low in vitamin D, um, then you should get a vitamin D supplement. So it's always a good idea to do that. Um, now, omega-3 fatty acids, believe it or not, um, when consumed in pregnancy, they can reduce the risk of allergy in your, in your baby. Um, that's been found in a number of studies. And we should be aiming for about uh, two servings of oily uh, fish per week. Now, I'll make the caveat as well that when it comes to oily fish too, it de- does depend upon where in the world you're based. So some mm-hmm. in some countries around the world, oily fish, there'd be lots of mercury. So with that, there's a caveat about that. But certainly we would recommend around two serves of oily fish per week is specifically good. Also probiotics. Um, this is a great one. So probiotics, yes, they are actually beneficial. So probiotics have been found to be helpful in reducing the risk of allergy when taken by a mother um, during the last trimester. So certainly during the last trimester, during the last five weeks in particular, from 35 weeks onwards, it's been shown to reduce the risk of allergy. So there's a couple of important points I would emphasize. Um, probiotics, um, uh, certainly servings of oily fish so that you get your omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin D, and also don't restrict your diet during pregnancy mm. um, and breastfeeding for that matter. It's important not to avoid to, like it's important not to avoid these allergenic foods really important mm. 
Yeah, that's super important. Um, do we know what specific probiotic? Because I'm always asked about what specific probiotics uh, they should be taking. Because as you know, and I'm sure it's the same in Australia, the plethora of different types of probiotics we have access to is is huge. Um, you know, and they they all have varying concentrations and various claims about the number of colony forming units and live versus, you know, all that stuff. So do we, do we know what specific probiotics um, that they've used? Look, I think Ruby, that's where there is a lot of, uh, I guess, um, dispute really, because when it comes to probiotic studies, there's many different strains of probiotics. Mm. Um, so the, 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 we know that in general, these probiotics are very helpful. So some researchers from Imperial College did this really large meta-analysis this is about 28 trials, and they found that, um, and these, these trials covered over 6,000 pregnant women. They looked at a number of different probiotics, and um, that was mm. important. I mean, most probiotics, as you know, will contain strains of lactobacillus or bifidobacterium. Yeah. Um, but what they found is that it's not necessarily the type of probiotic, although you know, I think there may be some differences between strains, but it's actually taking a probiotic from about week 35 onwards that's found okay. to beneficial in reducing the risk of um, childhood allergies, particularly eczema. So it's eczema is the one that really is, um, uh, is where the benefit is. Um, so mm. I would suggest that rather than sort of looking at all the different studies, um, rather than you know, trawling through lots of, uh, of clinical uh, research papers, I think just taking a probiotic um, that's been recommended by their doctor so by, by their GP, starting from week 35 would be what I would, would advocate for. I think we've got yeah, to be practical yeah. as well, rather than delving into, into intricacies. And we actually find would be that many of the probiotics are very similar, you know, in terms of effects, mm. just minor differences mm. and strains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, it, I think it's definitely something that we have to refine in the research exactly, you know, and, and like you said, in those meta-analyses, they use different formulations, different doses, different strains, and it's, it's, it's a wild, wild west out there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> With breast milk and microbes, again, I want to be respectful for any listeners who can't uh, produce breast milk or they can't breastfeed for, for whatever reason. With what we know about breast milk and microbial transfer, as well as um, the prebiotics that are found naturally in breast milk. What do we know about how that impacts the post 270 days uh, in the thousand day life cycle? Yeah, so a really good uh, question there. And yeah, I will give a, uh, I guess, a personal um, uh, account of this because my wife, Cindy, um, uh, she couldn't produce much breast milk. Um, and this often happens during, um, like during, during after pregnancy, that with the best of intentions, just can't produce enough breast milk. So, that, so you do require, um, uh, in, in some cases, formula. And so that that's just that's one thing that uh, I guess we've got to acknowledge. But having said that, um, we know that breast milk really is considered the gold standard. So mm-hmm. it's it's a gold standard because it, it is. Really, what I would term personalized nutrition for the baby. So the baby wants nutrition and the breast milk interestingly adapts to it. Um, so the, it's dynamic. So it's all constantly changing in response to the baby's needs. What's very interesting about 
uh, breast milk is that it contains um, lots of healthy proteins, of course, and contains um, lactose, but it also contains lots of healthy bacteria, so probiotics, and it contains, interesting enough, um, some special fibers called human milk oligosaccharides. So these special fibers, these human milk oligosaccharides, they're not actually food for the baby, but it's actually food for the baby's gut microbes. This is where it's so interesting. Um, the baby doesn't get nutrition directly from these special fibers called human milk oligosaccharides, but the baby's microbes do. Now, we know that where the baby's gut microbes, when they're exposed to these human milk oligosaccharides, it actually helps to shape their immune system, but it also can help shape their metabolic health as well. And what's really amazing about um, human milk oligosaccharides as opposed to animals is that there's such a huge diversity of human milk oligosaccharides. We have a diversity in humans that is unparalleled. So as an example, um, we will have a, a, a concentration of human milk oligosaccharides um, in humans that will be a hundred, so in some cases, a thousand times more than what is found in cow milk, um, sheep milk, and, and pig milk. So uh, uh, that's an example of the concentration mm. level. And also, there's a tremendous range of these human milk oligosaccharides, more than 200 of them that have been discovered. So you can see that, that breast milk has some very interesting properties that feed the baby, but also the baby's gut microbes. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I come. I think this comes down to this question about how, what do we know about uh, how commensal gut bacteria affect food allergy response. So when I say commensal, I mean that the the natural microbes that you find in the in baby's gut and how that shapes uh, our, our immune um, system. Yeah. So again, an excellent question, Rupi. So we know that the gut itself. Um, I think it's important to recognize the gut itself is actually the largest immune system in the body. So about two-thirds of all the immune cells in the body actually lies within the gut. And so a key point to emphasize here is that there has to be this fine balance between tolerance to a foreign antigen um, and an immune response that's generated in the gut. So bacteria play a really key role in initiating that balance. Now, we know that it's that resident or commensal bacteria, as you said, that plays a very vital role in priming the immune system and helping it to mm. mature. So we know that um, if you don't have immune tolerance, then the immune cells of the gut will just wipe out all of the commensal bacteria um, and there'll be no resident gut bacteria at all. So we know that we need to have these commensal bacteria. They're essential here um, for good immune health. And we know that because of the research uh, in germ-free animals. So these animals are actually bred in a germ-free environment. Um, they're actually extracted from cesarean sections and they grow in a chamber free of all bacteria. Um, so their gut is basically completely sterile. And what we know about um, these germ-free um, mice, and, and there's been a lot of work done on germ-free mice in particular, is that they have an underdeveloped immune system and they're much mm. more susceptible to getting infections. So, I mean, as an example, 
Um, we know that germ-free mice, um, they can get sick from just 10 salmonella cells in the gut, whilst oh, wow. uh, conventional mice withstand a million salmonella cells in the gut before becoming unwell. It just shows you how important it is to have gut microbes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so I don't want to, again, I want to side step this this train of thought that we have here right now, because I just want to zoom in on peanuts specifically, <laughs> because uh, I, I was quite surprised to hear about the rise of peanut allergy, specifically in Asia, where peanuts appears to be pretty ubiquitous in the cuisine out there. What, what do we know about why that's happening? Is it, some, again, something to do with the uh, reduction in the diversity of our microbial population as a result of westernized food or the other sort of, I mean, sure, there are other elements at play, but what, what is your opinion on that? I was really interested to hear about that specific bit. Yeah, so this is becoming a huge issue, as you said, in Asia. So um, there's been some work, research work done in Singapore. Um, Singapore um, has, has looked at um, childhood allergies. And back in the 90s, um, we know that peanut allergy wasn't even on the radar um, in, mm. in Singapore. Then you move you know, um, a decade and a half later, and it's become a huge issue. So what is it that's increasing the risk of peanut allergy? Um, as you've said, I think that there is a combination of environmental forces uh, at work. Um, I think that because we're living in a more sanitized environment, we're living in an environment which has more exposure to pollutants. We talked about earlier. These are risk factors to predispose a child to allergy uh, in general. Um, when it comes to peanut allergy, um, we know that, yes, the, the uh, incidence of peanut allergy seems to be increasing in those countries in particular that are uh, industrialized. So moving towards a more industrialized um, society does increase the risk of peanuts. It's thought perhaps that's, that relates to more exposure to peanut products in general. So for example, mm -hmm. there may be more peanut exposure to peanut oil around, um, even peanut um, allergens that might be present around um, in many, many, many products. So we know that, that peanut extracts can be found in many different foods. Um, and these days, as you know, Rupi, um, our our food is getting more diverse, which is a good thing, but it means mm. that many foods will contain bits of peanuts. Well, I think there's definitely a trend now towards uh, towards having diets that are um, yeah, more diverse, more tasty, more interesting. And you might find that there can be soups, there can be, um, there can be uh, dips, for example, that may contain a peanut. Um, so that could be part of the reason as well that we're, we might be seeing more peanut in general with, with foods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was interesting to go back to our earlier point about peanut uh, exposure early. The, the leap study in the I think it was Leap On, which is a follow up yes. study on that. Um, that that was a yeah a, a mindset shift for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. So the Leap study was actually um, published in the United Kingdom. So it was a UK study published in 2015 mm. in a very prestigious journal. And what it found was that, yes, I mean, if you introduce peanut early, I mean, early in life, and this is, again, comes back to um, the, the concept that we're talking about here. If you expose babies to peanuts in the first 12 months of life, 
then that can actually help to um, reduce their uh, risk of developing peanut allergies by creating this immune tolerance. And this is a fundamental paradigm shift to what was thought many, uh, like over a decade earlier. So it was thought that you know, children that were at risk of peanut allergies should avoid peanuts until they had a more mature immune system. So maybe wait till age three before having it. But this strategy, which was uh, adopted by many Western countries, uh, just failed to, to reduce uh, peanut allergies. And it was actually other countries that uh, where they didn't do this, where children were exposed to peanuts early in life, that they found, yes, there was some protective effect in reducing the risk of, of allergies. And so the LEAP study was a great study because it was found that, you know, with a food challenge at the age of five, there were a smaller proportion of children without peanut allergy compared to those that were um, avoiding um, peanuts early in life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's uh, it's amazing just how quickly things can change as well. And like I've seen it on, in the course of my relatively short clinical career, how we've changed our thinking about these things. And I, I want to, because we, we've talked about, you know, the hypotheses around why we see more food allergy, the environmental impacts, maternal diet. And I think now listeners are probably thinking, okay, fine. I understand all this stuff. This is great. And this is where I think your, your book has the most uh, practical impact because you've got this nine-week meal plan that's uh, loosely based, I, I believe, on the EAT study, which is all about introducing uh, common allergenic foods in that weaning period to 12 months. Maybe we could talk a bit about the concepts behind why this is uh, useful and also how you've very nicely structured it in the book because I think it's it's and you did it with a registered dietitian as well so I think it's yeah. just a, a fantastically practical thing to do particularly for those who have you know worries about allergy as we all do mm. so look I want to give some background to all this and a background mm. behind this diet too I guess um I mentioned before about the pasta study so the pasta study yeah. was that important study of course where um they wanted to look for associations uh, see what could reduce the risk of um, childhood allergy. Now, what was really interesting in that PASA study was that they looked at uh, diets and um, in, in um, a cohort of uh, young uh, infants, what was found was that high, a high diversity of foods was actually protective for allergies in the first year of life, particularly for asthma um, and food allergies. So it was really good having a very diverse um, a range of foods. Now, what was very interesting was they found that the protective effect was particularly strong between six months to 12 months. And this is a really important concept, six months to 12 months. And therefore, if you eat a variety of um, food types, including allergens, between the age of six and 12 months, that is thought to be the key then to protecting against development of later, later childhood allergies. So with that in mind, it builds us to the EAT study. So building on from the work that was done in LEAP, they found that, yes, if you expose children to peanuts in the first 12 months, that will be, that will be uh, a very good thing in terms of reducing allergy risk. But the EAT study was really good because, again, this is from the United Kingdom, so great research from the UK here. They, the researchers wanted to study whether if you introduced um, other allergenic foods in addition to peanuts. So there was peanut, 
There's also egg and milk and sesame, um, white fish and wheat. If you introduce those other allergenic foods to infants, was it safe? And it turns out it was very safe. So there was zero anaphylaxis among the more than 1,300 babies that were participating in this study. And, and it was very safe. The challenge, however, is to get parents to <laughs> get their, their babies to really adhere to all of those six foods every week. And this is where yeah. um, I've developed a meal plan that should be really helpful to our parents. And really, this is really to be introduced between that critical window of six months and 12 months. Because as you know, Rupi, um, till six months of age, it's recommended by many societies, exclusive breastfeeding until about that time. Mm. So there's a lot of um, strong support for, for that. But generally, you can introduce solids around anywhere from four to six months. But here we're looking at introducing food allergens around the six-month mark. And the aim here is to introduce these food allergens sequentially um, for mm. the baby. So sequentially for the baby, so, they're actually, so that it helps to stimulate their immune system and lead to tolerance. So they're recognizing it. Um, but to do it in a way, a rupee that's actually very safe. So here we're talking about how we can do it in a very safe way so that when you introduce a little bit of allergen for baby, what are the signs you, you've got to look out for? Um, how mm. do you do it? How do you increase the dosage of your allergen to the baby? And once, the, once that baby is um, used to that allergen and is having no issues, how do you incorporate that into their meal, uh, meals ongoing? And so that's mm. where the nine-week plan was developed. Yeah, this this makes a lot of sense considering everything that we've uh, talked about thus far. And it's a very pragmatic approach because I think a lot of parents are confused about, you know, the old stuff that they've heard in the past, perhaps stuff that their uh, grandparents have told them as well. And so, you know, having that, uh, uh, let's say that that exposure to use some technical terms, so that exposure in a controlled manner for those specific uh, foods that we know have a high likelihood of creating an allergic response on a week by week, and also giving them the confidence and the guidance as to look as to what to look out for. I think that's super reassuring, and that this is a strategy I think we should really be incorporating amongst a, no a number of different uh, areas, actually. So those specific allergenic foods, which ones are we talking about here? Which are, which are the common ones? We've already talked about a couple of them. Yeah, so look, I think that we've, we have talked about those ones in particular, and I guess like in talking about them, um, I can actually talk about the different types of foods that we're producing at a particular time point in the, in, in, in the, in the nine weeks. So obviously okay. week one, um, so really around six months of age, we're introducing egg. egg. Egg is the first one that's introduced into it. And then around week two, we're introducing dairy. So again, you know, um, you know, from egg to dairy. Then week three, sesame. So here we talk about some sesame-containing foods that parents can expose their children to. Week four, it's about fish. Um, then we start getting into the heavier stuff. So week five, we talk about peanut, okay? <laughs> and then week six is wheat. Week seven is shellfish. Week eight is soy. Um, so soy is a big one. And week nine is tree nut. Um, mm. So that shows the sequential order in terms of exposure to these different allergens and a lot of it's based upon common sense as well. In 
terms of mm. you know, what are the what are the sorts of allergens that most parents would feed their their, their children um, very early on. So we're talking about a sequential order here, and we're making sure that we're not putting in um, similar types of allergens, for example, peanuts and peanuts too closely together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That 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 makes a lot of sense because I think you know certainly when I work in pediatric emergency. And we have you know, kids coming in. It's very common, uh, obviously, you know, general rash and stuff. Thankfully, we don't see too many anaphylaxis reactions, but certainly a lot of worrying symptoms that uh, die down, especially if we give them a, a bit of um, medication to, to dampen that in terms of antihistamines. But all, 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 like in a lot of cases, the, the diet's quite mixed already. So you just don't know whether it's the egg or the dairy or whether it's you know from the day before and because all these different things have different timelines as well so it's very i mean i can't remember what i had two days ago so you know it's it's, it's quite tough isn't it so this way it's it's a lot more strategic and we're not being a lot more intentional about looking for these issues that we know are so common yeah that's right rupee and it's about also making sure that when you introduce the allergen you're looking carefully for reactions so i mean as part of the plan I recommend introducing an, an allergen at a consistent time during the day so that you know mm. you're looking you're actually looking for that response. Um, certainly when you when you're introducing new allergens, you've got to be very alert. Um, and hopefully by doing this, I think this could help to reassure parents and um, so they won't need to be so concerned that they will necessarily park, you know, in front of a hospital <laughs> emergency yeah. or trialing out, you know, peanut butter for the first time. At least with this sort of plan. This can hopefully give parents um, some reassurance about a strategy that they can use um, when starting allergens for the first time for their children. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just on that note, we, we talked about probiotics for in the maternal diet. What about probiotics for children specifically? Is there any evidence that we should be uh, including that uh, in, in, the, in the first thousand days? Absolutely, absolutely. So there was a very... Um, Good study that was published actually in 2018 from New Zealand. And this looked at the long-term effects of early probiotic use on childhood allergen risk. So in this study here, pregnant women that were assigned um, at 35 weeks gestation to take one of two one of two probiotic strains or placebo. And these women were asked to continue the capsules until six months after giving birth. And the children were also given the capsules until two years of age. Mm-hmm. Now, um, as we know, that the two-year mark is around, is that's the end of the first 1,000 days of life. So these researchers cleverly designed it. So for the first 1,000 days of life. And the researchers followed the children to 11 years of age. And they monitored them for the risk of, of allergies. So what they found was that if you gave the children these probiotics during early childhood, two years of age, it would result in a uh, more than 50% reduction in the risk of eczema and almost 30% reduction in the risk of hay fever um, over, the, over, that, over that period. So it was huge in terms of, of, of that benefit. And we know that um, over 11 years, because it was done as a long-term study, that exposure to that particular probiotic um, did reduce uh, the what we call the sensitization to atopy. So that um, the, the tendency to have an allergy, it reduced eczema, it reduced wheeze. So it was pretty striking because it tells you that probiotics early in life 
can make a meaningful difference in the longer term. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, great. So I, I, in my head, and hopefully the listeners said, I'm formulating a lovely strategy here. So we've talked about maternal diet, we talked about the first thousand days in general. And what I'm getting this uh, uh, picture in my head of, okay, diverse uh, diet for the uh, for mother, uh, including lots of different types of foods, including early exposure to some of those allergens, as long as they don't have allergies to those uh, themselves. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about probiotics as well as the potential for, for potential use. And then uh, for uh, postpartum breastfeeding, weaning, including those foods in the sequential manner, potential for probiotics, as well as some other fun stuff, visiting a farm, getting a pet maybe, and yes. re- removing environmental <laughs> pollutants. <laughs> Have I missed anything there? Is there anything Ruby, you else? you got everything sort of- there. That's fantastic. Okay, great. <laughs> this is great. Okay. Well, I, I'm glad because I think like people always ask me for tangible information. They want to know, okay, what things we should be looking out for with a little bit of flex as well. So they can have fun with food because I think at the end of the day, I, I'm a big fan of yum cha, for example. When we start talking about yum cha, I was just thinking about all the different things that I really want to eat. But um, yeah, I, I think, you know, this kind of structure is going to be really useful for people. And if we were to future scope for a bit, what do you see on the horizon in terms of treatments uh, and maybe even, you know, preventative measures as well that, that could be impacting food allergy? Because, I mean, make no bones about it. It's definitely on the rise. It's very hard to like uh, flatten that curve at the moment with the current suite of tools that we have. But there must be some things that, particularly as you're involved in the research side of things, that you might be excited about that we might see over the horizon in the next 10 to 15 years. Absolutely. Years, so um, there's some really interesting things that are being investigated right now. So one of them actually you might have heard about called vaginal seeding. Um, mm, vaginal yeah. seeding is really interesting. And so that's the idea. Well, we know that in uh, women that are born, uh, women that have a cesarean section, their children uh, have an increased risk of allergies, notably that of asthma. And so one of the strategies that's been looked at is um, the idea of vaginal seeding. So that's where newborns that are delivered by a C-section are swabbed with their mother's vaginal fluids soon after birth. So they actually get swabbed um, around their skin. Um, and that has been looked at. It's been quite controversial because, mm. um, because obviously there are some risks involved with vaginal swabbing. Um, and one of the risks, obviously, is contracting um, infections. There's a baby contracting infections, particularly from group B strep. So it's, it's potentially... Uh, a new strategy that can potentially modulate the baby's uh, gut microbes um, to be more similar to that of a vaginally um, born uh, infant. Um, but of course, I think that it should be done as part of a controlled trial. So I think it should be done yeah. done carefully. Um, it shouldn't be just just done, um, you know, as a sort of a backyard a backyard operation. So I think that's that's important. People have looked at immunotherapy, and this is actually something mm. which is really relevant to the peanut allergy world. And what immunotherapy is, very simply, it's a type of allergy vaccination where the body's exposed to small amounts of an allergen in gradually increasing doses so that eventually the body can build up immunity to that allergen. And that means that when you get exposed to that allergen in the future, there should be a reduced response to that allergen. In other words, the allergic response or anaphylaxis should be a lot less uh, in response to that. Um, 
it's been studied a lot in peanuts. This is where it's very controversial because when it comes to peanuts, um, back in the 90s, they looked at uh, injections, immunotherapy in, in children, and they found that that was actually unsafe. Um, so mm. they switched to oral immunotherapy. And they've actually looked now at um, peanut flour as a type of immunotherapy, and it's been certainly in the US. Um, there's been a lot of uh, research around it um, and talked around uh, a lot. There are still some risks, though, however, um, would be with immunotherapy because large um, studies, I should say, this very large meta-analysis, which is a, 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 a looking at a collection of studies, it actually found that that for peanut immunotherapy, um, there, w- there were certain risks involved with it. I mean, it, it did increase the risk of allergic and anaphylactic reactions to play with, with placebo. So there's some risks there um, with immunotherapy, but it is an, it's a hot area. People are looking at this a yeah. lot. Um, another yeah. area, which is a good one, is fecal microbial transplants. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, could we use that? I mean, we, we do that with adults. We do that for yeah. certain types of conditions like Clostridium difficile infection. Could we do that with um, babies? Um, certainly, fecal microbial transplantation has been studied in young children as early as four months, um, to my oh, knowledge. Right. So really early. Um, and um, there's, there's a study uh, underway at the moment uh, looking at... Um, the use of fecal microbial transplantation for peanut allergies. So that's a study which is carried, it's currently being run through Boston Children's Hospital right now. They're looking at, at fecal microbial transplantation. So again, wow. a really interesting area to look at. Um, and finally, um, one really new area is looking at phage therapy. So what is phage therapy? It's a virus that can actually kill off bacteria. And so uh, the aim here, I guess, is could these phages be uh, developed to target certain types of more harmful bacteria? Because what we know from a lot of the research is that certain types of bacteria are linked to allergy, childhood allergy, so and, and peanut allergy being one of them. So maybe you could develop a virus that can target mm. that bacteria. So really mm. intriguing areas. That's yeah. That that's super interesting. We we had um Professor Karen Nadu on the podcast from Stanford uh, last year, I think, talking about oral immunotherapy, which sounds exciting. Uh, but those other areas are, are, are yeah, I can t- totally see those uh, kicking off, particularly if we get over the ick factor of fecal microbial transplants <laughs> as well. Is it's not very nice to think about, is it? The crapsicles and, the, and that kind of stuff. Um, Vincent, this has been brilliant. Uh, I, I highly recommend the book. I think uh, it's you know such a great resource, and it's great to see people like yourself who are working in both academia and clinical frontline medicine as well as a gastroenterologist doing this kind of work and putting the uh, content out in in you know uh, excuse the pun digestible formats for people to 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 really learn from and and put into practice so this is great and i really do appreciate you coming on and uh, hopefully when i'm in sydney we can be up in person for some That'd be fantastic. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> thank you so much for having me on the show Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast episode. Hopefully you get an idea and a picture of what all the information looks like as we discuss in the podcast. 
It's a maternal diet that has exposure to known allergens as long as the mother does not have issues themselves. Uh, making sure that you're weaning using a systematic approach. There is a potential benefit for having certain supplements in the maternal diet as well as probiotics for children. And there's a whole bunch more information in the Healthy Baby Gut Guide that you can find on the website, thedoctorskitchen.com, on the show notes there. There'll be links there and you can just Google it as well. Dr. Vincent Ho has got some great stuff on YouTube. Please do go check it out. And I will see you here next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.